Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if you think Voyager wastes too much time on side quests, just wait till they're haggling with the Borg over vacuum tubes for Tom's TV. I'm joined on this episode once again by James Swallow. James is the New York Times and Sunday Times bestselling author of numerous novels, short stories, audio dramas, and video games set in a variety of fictional universes, including Warhammer 40K, Deus Ex, Doctor Who, Stargate, and Blake 7. His latest novel, The Dark Veil, follows the adventures of Captain Riker and the USS Titan in the years before Star Trek Picard and is available now. James, welcome back to the show. It's lovely to be here, Aaron. Thank you again for inviting me back. It's great to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about Memorial, the 14th episode of the sixth season of Star Trek Voyager. Starfleet's mission is to not only seek out new life and new civilizations, but to interface with and educate themselves about the cultures that they encounter. Space is big, though, really big, and sometimes those cultures have ceased to exist before the encounter occurs. The Federation's desire to respect all beings extends to that people's funerary traditions. But at what point does a dead culture become an object of study and something you can no longer interact with? And what if that alien culture, despite its demise, continues to demand that its sins be heard? But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, James, uh, it's great to have you here again. It's been a while since we've spoke. Uh, and at that time, the release of Shadow, your fourth Mark Dane novel, was imminent. Now it's 2021, and your fifth Dane book, Rogue, is already in the rearview mirror, having released last year. Is this it for Mark Dane, or can we expect to see more adventures with him? Oh, I'm definitely not done with Mark. Um, right now, the uh, Shadow is going to be released in the United States, I think, uh, in a couple of months' time, in a hardback mm. back edition for Forge Books there. And Rogue is coming out in paperback in the summer. We've just moved the schedule uh, back a little bit to kind of move things around to uh, accommodate what with COVID and, and lockdown and everything. But uh, the sixth book in the Mark Dane series, which we haven't released the title of yet, I am just in the middle of doing final edits on that, and that should be coming out towards the end of this year. That is awesome to hear. I, I should mention as well that Rogue was a number one bestseller on Amazon last year, so congratulations there. Thank you. Uh, have you thought about adapting the Dane stories to another medium like TV or video games or comics? You know, we have had some conversations about that. Um, uh, we, I was having a very interesting conversation with a, a film production company just in the run-up before COVID, and it's like everything else kind of has put everything the brakes on that. You know, so yep. <laughs> yeah, so um, you know, it's 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 kind of like everything's been in a holding pattern for the for the last kind of year and a half. It's it's interesting to to have that discussion and and see um, people kind of throwing out names, going, "Oh, would you like this director attached? Would you like this actor attached?" And and I'm I'm like, really, seriously, is this this really a thing? And and if people just kind of toss this stuff around, and I think that that can't be real. You can't really, you can't really be serious about that guy, really. Sure. No, sure. Not. But you know, it's like all these sort of things. It's it's kind of it's fairy gold, right? It's 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 fun to hear these people talk about it, but it's not really there. It's not really real until someone right, right. commits to it. You know, so right now it's kind of fantasy casting, fantasy directors, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just it's just sort of like you know, going on an IMDb and picking a bunch of actors, going, yeah, that guy'd be fine. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like those um, Wizard Magazine in the old days did those like yeah. fan casting. Oh, yeah, absolutely like that. Yeah, we want totally. this guy and that guy. Your budget would be $400 million just for <laughs> yeah. just the talent. But yeah, it's totally true. You know, so so at the moment, um, everything's kind of up in the air. Um, it, it is definitely something I would I would like to do. Um, I think I'd want a pretty good degree of control on it, though. I mean, I very early on when, when my first Mark Dane novel, uh, Nomad, came out in 2016, 
very early on, we had some initial interest from a company that wanted to do a, a kind of Netflix style limited series show. Yeah. And they said, well, we're going to write you a big check and then, then you can just go away and never come back. And I said, that's not what I'm going to do with mm, this. Yeah. You know, I care about this. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't think so. You know, well, not unless you maybe back up a truck full of money to my house and then we could have a have that conversation. But, sure. uh, you know, I, I, I care a great deal about the Mark Dane series and, uh, you know, I want to be uh, fully involved with it at, at any stage. So um, we'll see how it goes to, you know, to circle back to your actual question. Yes, I would love to do that. <laughs> but, but with these but with these kind of things is what I've learned from years of working in this industry and, and having friends and colleagues who've gone through similar processes is, is that until you actually see the thing on the screen, it's just not done. It's just not real. So I'm yeah, concentrating right. on the bit that I can control, which is just writing the books. Yeah. Once you see, once you're watching the credits roll, you know that it was real. Yeah. Yeah. Last time you were on the show, we talked about how writing espionage novels set in the modern era, that is, in our post-9-11 political climate, is uh, different from a Cold War setting. In the Cold War, it's always assumed that the adversary is the Russians or their proxies. But it isn't long after World War II that spy fiction authors start introducing third-party antagonists. You know, uh, Schmirsch is the villain in many of the Bond novels, which were written in the 50s. But by the time the movies come along in the 60s, uh, we've got Spectre, who are a self-serving terrorist organization. And by the 80s, even Tom Clancy and John Le Carre were moving on to drug lords and terrorists. And it seems like the Cold War period still holds a lot of fascination for audiences and storytellers. But even during the Cold War, writers seem to be looking for ways to write about other things. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, it's funny to, to talk about Cold War now because we are really and truly we're in, we're doing Cold War 2.0 now. But you know, but the but the battlefield is very different, and the you know the the, the threat space and the the threat actors out there are, are some of them are the same, but but they're they're kind of like configured in a different way. You know, Russia, China, North Korea. Are, are all sort of serious threats but a lot of that stuff is now happening in the cyber theater rather than you know just people shooting each other dead in dark alleys that stuff is still happening but there's also this kind yeah. of you know this shadow world now of the uh, of the cyber realm where all that kind of more dangerous you know more scary stuff is happening and it's also the kind of threat that trickles down to the lives of ordinary people like us you know every time you get an email from somebody saying you know Oh, I've hacked your credit card details. You know, they're using the yeah. same kind of software that uh, a nation state actor might use to hack the details of somebody working on a missile test program. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to go to an enemy country and plan a, a bomb to blow something up. Now you can get on the computer and, uh, you know, ruin their water processing plant, you know, or affect their, uh, their, their nuclear power plants or something like that. That's right. You know, it's it's funny being a thriller writer. There, you, you're absolutely right about what you said earlier about this kind of phase state change. Where you know, it used to be the Russians were the bad guys. First, it was first it was the Germans, then it was the Russians, then it was China, and then we reached that stage where it's okay. You know, we're, we're uh, it's Glasnost, Perestroika. It's like, oh, the Russians might be our friends now, and and suddenly the yeah. threat threat actors became kind of evil corporations, or uh, you yeah. see like you see terrorist groups. Or you uh, and you look at some of the sort of there's that kind of period in techno thrillers where you can see authors struggling to find a bad guy, and you'd see yeah. stuff like uh, oh suddenly uh, Germany has resurged and decided to be taken over by the far right. Germany is now going to take over Europe, and that's going to be the plot of this novel. Which kind of you look at that and think eh, that doesn't feel that realistic. Or it'd be you'd see like a coalition of smaller groups teaming up to fight kind of the superpowers. Yeah, um, and and that sort of flailing around to find ideas. And I think that's kind of the reason why we saw for a while kind of drop off in techno thriller storytelling and, and the rise of stuff like the kind of Dan Brown style of thriller where, 
where you have a you have a more of a mythological kind of basis and 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 we we for a while that was kind of the big the big thing the the sort of the airport novel the beach read but i think the yeah. pendulum is kind of swinging back the other way now because in the real world you know uh, terrorist threats and that sort of thing that still is a very realistic thing but the idea of nation state warfare this mm -hmm. cold war 2.0 is kind of becoming a bit more resurgent now and i think techno writers techno thriller writers like me are looking at that and going well this is great grist for the mill because this gives <laughs> us uh, an, an interesting adversary for our heroes to fight against yeah i think people scoffed when in the late 90s uh, jonathan price was the villain of tomorrow never dies and he <laughs> wanted to get publishing rights in china or something like that and then of course 25 years later we're literally facing like uh the possible topple of states over media control so it's uh yeah the circles of relevance kind of come it's, back it's T terribly prescient when you go back and look at that movie and yeah. you think, oh, you know, it will seem like, oh, how can a newspaper guy, you know, kind of ferment a war between two two nation states? Well, actually, you know, not as crazy yeah. as you might think. I'm going to team up with a Chinese agent to stop a media magnet from uh, destroying the world. Yeah, it seems uh, very, very modern. Very much so. I, I can't remember if I asked you before, but let's say you get a call from Penguin Random House. Uh, we need a new author for the James Bond novels. Do you take the job? Man, I mean, um, of course I'd say yes. I mean, I'd be crazy, right? You know. <laughs> sure. But um, wow, I mean, what a poison chalice, right? I mean, it would—it's the 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 burden on you of the burden of expectation would be astronomical. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I couldn't not take it. Uh, you know, my father's ghost stalked me down the street saying, "You fool! Why haven't you done this?" You know, because I've, I've, you know th those movies were like mother's milk to me. Is this kind of stuff that I was raised on? So absolutely, sure. you know, I would, I would, uh, I would take it. But it would be, wow, what a challenge! It would be so hard to do it well because Bond has been so heavily mined through by yeah. different authors and, and in film and and uh, and and in, and in prose. You know, to, I'd relish it. You know, whether whether I'd be able to kind of land it at the end of the day, well, that's another question. But um, sure. I would, I would definitely kind of grab on to that with both hands. I think if if I ever got that opportunity, I would like to write a Bond novel set in the present day as well, um, because okay. I think you know in recent years the Bond books have kind of gone back a little bit into the sort of the the sort of classic Fleming era, you know, in the sort of sixties yeah. yeah. or what have you, fifties and sixties. And uh, as great as those books are, I don't think I would be equipped to tell that kind of story in that era well. I'd go. I'd go back to what feels kind of closer to me. Maybe if I did write in a different time period, I'd, I'd maybe pick the 80s or the 90s. But sure. I would bring it closer to the present day, because I'm fascinated by the the technology of of modern espionage as much as I am sort of by the old kind of stuff of like you know, dead drops and Morse code and what have you like that. I, yeah, I'm, I right. like the the synergy of the two things is is fascinating to me. What about another medium like uh, Warren Ellis's work in the comics or or maybe for a video game? Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, we do we do have a new Bond video game actually on the way from the the people who brought us the Hitman games, IO Interactive, yeah, right. um, and and I can't wait to play that. I've got to say, I love the Hitman games. I think they're going to do a fantastic job with it. Yeah, I wonder if James Bond will be dressing up like waiters and, and things like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and as for but as for the comic books, I mean, yeah, of course, Dynamite Comics recently have been doing uh, a lot of James Bond comic books, and they've been exploring the character in interesting ways, and I think that would be a fascinating approach to take because different medium you know means you kind of exercise different muscles as a writer and yeah. and and comic books lend themselves well to kind of you know big action events your brassy sort of 
widescreen kind of storytelling. And I think yeah. Bond plays very well to that. Certainly the movie version does. Speaking of Penguin Random House, it was announced late last year that Simon and Schuster had been acquired by Penguin, making the big five, the big four. And you've been writing for a long time and for a lot of different publishers. How do you see that affecting the industry? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm quite cautious about it. I have to be honest, you know, because yeah. whenever there's less publishers, uh, however you want to slice it, that's not a good thing because it reduces the number of options for people to tell their stories. And if there's less publishers, it means there are less authors getting an opportunity to get their work seen. It means the market becomes more conservative and it picks mm -hmm. safer options. And yeah. that that kind of falls new voices. So on that side of things i am kind of a little bit disquieted by it um, i would like to see a larger more diverse kind of uh, publishing industry out there i mean i think the you know um, that deal hasn't even been ratified fully yet so i mean there's still a chance it may not yeah. even go ahead you know yeah but um yeah i mean i think it's it's a difficult line to walk you know because every time something like that happens there's an acquisition takes place immediately there's a bloodbath of of, yeah, um, right. of of projects that get killed for various different reasons because some people decide to leave because they don't like the new management or new people come in, things change around, you know. And I've had friends who have worked for publishers that have been, you know, absorbed by another publisher and, and their trilogy of books is, is suddenly like, you know, killed stone dead at book two and the third book never comes out and that kind of thing. Oh, so yeah, yeah. so it can be, you know, the, the, the authors are at the sharp end of these things and it can be, it can be really sort of problematic. It's. I think at this stage, it's, it's too early to tell. You know, the, the publishing industry is like a super tank. I mean, it's very, very slow, takes ages <laughs> to turn around, you know. So even if this does go ahead, it's going to be a couple of years before you even see in the marketplace how that decision has affected things. Two yeah. years from now, you'll see what books aren't coming out or what books aren't coming out. And it'll be like, oh, OK, these are the changes that were made. But right now, it's kind of too early to tell. Uh, we also discussed last time you were on the show espionage, uh, the idea of it as we see it on screen in Star Trek, which is to say not often, but mostly in the form of Section 31. And Section 31 as an entity has been employed quite a bit in the new Trek shows. And of course, we've got the Philippa Giorgio show in development. Um, they've been involved in a lot of questionable ethical skullduggery in Trek in their history. But do you think there's room for a kindler, gentler Section 31 series? Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, isn't it? I think what what we're talking about here is is like let's do spies in Star Trek, right? And that in itself yeah. is a cool idea. But whether Section Thirty One is that idea, uh, I think that's a different conversation, you know, because yeah. the idea of a Starfleet intelligence show, you know, a, a kind of something that you know, it, could, it could be like you know Star Trek does SEAL Team, or it could be Star Trek does. Um, you know, kind of like MI5. It could be anything like that. You know, it yeah. could be pe people in corridors of power, like dealing with stuff, or it could be secret agents undercover and what you, what have you. That's yeah. an interesting idea. But the thing is, is Section 31 has always been characterized as the bad guys. Really bad, yeah. <laughs> so really bad, right? So how do we how do we redeem that if that's going to be your focal point? I mean, is it is that what the story is about? I mean, and that that could be interesting. Is it a story about how? someone tries to redeem bring bring section 31 back to the light and try yeah. and make them a, a, a an organization for good that could yeah. be an interesting way to, to explore this narrative is it you know the good people working for a bad organization you know and we've seen yeah. that kind of stuff i mean if uh, if you remember the tv show alias yes had the the central conceit of that was a, a woman who's a secret agent who thinks she's working for the cia and she discovers that she's actually working for a group of bad guys yeah. And 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 that's a really cool idea, that kind of double bluff. And that feels very much like a kind of spy movie kind of move, right? 
yeah. playing out something like that in Star Trek would be interesting. But I think that they've got they've got a hard road to go to make Section Thirty One feel like a sympathetic organization. <laughs> yeah, I think they really do. You've got a line of successful spy novels, and you've written over a dozen Trek books, so they'd be fools not to get your input on a Section Thirty One series. <laughs> oh, that would be lovely. But you know, it's uh, the door does swing both ways these days with the, the TV shows, and we do get kind of a, an opportunity to talk back to some of the people working on the shows, but. Um, whether whether any of us book writers would get to kind of cross over well you know i would absolutely love that so um you know mr Chrisman, if you're listening you know call me <laughs> but you're <laughs> you in touch with him <laughs> but i you know I, I'm, I'm not holding my breath on that one well uh speaking of holding your breath that's a good transition uh, how have you been holding up in the time of covid covid19 well it's uh it's been pretty pretty crazy i think for everybody you know i think we're all in the same sort of situation we all feel like we've got we've got kind of cabin fever it is like kind of being under yeah. house arrest but as i've said to yeah. a, a lot of my friends uh being a writer a full-time professional writer i have an office in my house i work from home and i've been doing that for several years so when my friends say to me like it's crazy working from home i'm well welcome to my life this is this is what it's like being a jobbing <laughs> author um yeah, yeah. you know except with uh, you know, less ability to kind of go out and socialize so yeah. um i think i adjusted pretty well my wife um she works for a, a local council here in the uk oh. and um she's had to transit to um working from home so we turned one of the rooms into the house uh into an office for her and nice. I think it, it was helpful, actually, that she had me around because I gave her a few hints and tips. It's like, this is how to do working from home without going crazy. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, hydrate a lot, take breaks, and just, you, right. know, you know, focus on your mental well-being. Well, uh, the episode that we're talking about today is, I think, a very strong episode of Voyager, and it's one that you have a connection to as it's based on an original story idea by you. And the last time that we were on, you shared the story of how you got the news that they were buying your idea for the episode, uh, a call from Brandon Braga, and how exciting it was. Conversely, I heard you say in an interview recently that when you sold your first your first idea to Trek, uh, the story that would become the episode one, that you thought that you'd be jumping for joy, but instead you just felt numb the time was that shock yeah i think it was you know it was um people have often said that doing a selling a pitch is kind of the, it's the nerd equivalent of winning the lottery right you know and yeah sure yeah and it really was and, and i got to do it twice right which is you know um lucky me but i do remember it was some um, lolita fajo who was a script coordinator on the show and um, and by mm. the time i'd made the sale she, she'd become a, a personal friend of mine and i remember she called me and she said i'd specifically asked permission to to call you because as a friend, I wanted to be the one to break the news to you. Guess what? You made a sale. And I yeah. can remember just being sort of spaced out by the whole, is this really actually happening kind of experience? <laughs> sure. uh, just, uh, you know, after all the t I've been doing this for so long and, and it, it seemed like such a kind of pipe dream, such an impossible challenge that I was throwing myself at it. I, I think maybe on some level, I never thought I was going to do it. And then yeah. suddenly I did. And I was like, oh, wow, you, you, you did it. And I, and I did, and I kind of didn't know where to go. And I, and I was, I was really quite stunned by the whole thing. And I can remember after the conversation, it was kind of a couple of hours later when I kind of caught up with it, and it was like, holy, what have I done? You know, and, <laughs> and then kind of like, and then, then that was the sort of like the the, the wave of it just kind of hit me as I realised the the ramifications of of that I'd done something that that was literally going to change my career, and it did. Yeah, and, you know that that um, put me on a course that has led me to the career I have now. That's awesome. It ideas go through you know, obviously a lot of rewriting before they hit the small screen, um, and I'm sure the same is true of your idea. Do you remember your original pitch for Memorial? Yeah, um, the the story was originally called uh, A Memory of Wartime, 
And um, mm. uh, the the thing about that is, is uh, I, I remember that story distinctly because each, each each of the stories I pitched has like kind of a distinct sort of place in my mind. One was mm. very important to me because it was the first sale I ever made, and to mm. me that was like, wow, well, you know, you've done this, you know, you you popped your cherry, you are a professional writer now, you've done a professional thing. But immediately after that, I was consumed by this feeling that you know I have to do this again. I have to do it a second time because I don't want to be thought of as this kind of a tourist, you know, a one-hit wonder. Yeah. yeah. And I and I thought I'd be doomed to have people say, "Well, you just got lucky." You know, that's why you made this out. You don't, you know, it's, it wasn't talent. You just got lucky. And I thought I need to do this again to prove to myself that that's not true. That I did this because I was good enough. And so, if anything, I felt like I worked even harder to try and make a second. And what I would do with these pictures is, is that sometimes I would do them over the telephone or, or I would, uh, you know, travel over to the studios and I would do them in person. And I can remember the, the day I pitched this story is I'd worked in the week running up to my trip to LA. I'd, I'd worked on all these story ideas and I do kind of like a 500 word, like one page document that would all the beats of the story, you know, nail it all down. And then the night before I would go to do the pitch meeting, I would get a bunch of index cards and I would just write bullet points down on the index cards, kind of to refresh my memory and remind myself what I was doing. And in the taxi cab on the way to, to the Paramount lot, I'm, I'm looking at these cards and I, and I literally had an idea in the cab on the way there. I thought, hey, you know what? What would happen if this? And I just jotted it down on the back of one of the cards. And I thought no more of it. And I went into pitch to uh, Brian Fuller, um, who is a great guy, taught me a lot about writing and a you know, really, really talented writer and a, and a great story editor and uh, a, a lot, just a lot of fun to just talk about Star Trek with. And I sat in his office and I pitched him these ideas and he shut down every single one, one after the other. <laughs> and, and at the end of it, I was like, I've, oh, what have I done? I've traveled halfway around the world to pitch all these ideas and just every single one of them has just crashed and burned. And you can imagine how I felt at that point is I'm going to, what's going to happen now is I'm going to pick up my stuff, get in my cab, go back to my hotel and drink a <laughs> bottle of scotch or something, you know, because, right. yeah. <laughs> and, and wait for my flight to go home. Right. And, and it was like, yeah. you know, this, this, this is, this trip is 100% a failure. And Brian must have seen the look on my face and he said to me, have you got anything else? And I said, well, there's this one thing I just, I just wrote, it's like two or three lines. I wrote this down in the back of the taxi and is this is the idea. Yeah. And the idea, and the idea was, the Voyager crew have a flashback from being involved in this terrible war, but they were never there, and and they're living somebody else's memory. And I just saw a light go on in his head, and he's like, "That's really good." And he's he's like, "Well, what if we did this?" And then suddenly it stopped being a conversation where I was pitching an idea to him, and it became a conversation where we were talking, we were breaking a story. Sure. And. And his energy just kind of infected me. And I said, okay, well, if we do this, we do this. And then we just kind of, we, we, we threw around a bunch of ideas. And the, the meeting kind of ran way longer than it was supposed to. And at the end of it, Brian went, this is good. I'm going to take it upstairs. This is, you know, this is good stuff. And, and that was it. And it was just this, this random magic moment. You know, had I just picked up my stuff and walked out the door, had he not asked me, I wouldn't have made that second sale. Yeah. And it's just amazing that kind of raises edge, by the way, that, you know, success comes or goes. And um, as I said, after that, you know, the um, the story was picked up. It was uh, um, Brandon Braga did the uh, developed the story past that point, and he and I worked together on uh, kind of breaking that story over a couple of phone meetings. And then it was, I believe, Robin Berger who wrote the the final version of the script. Right. 
and the story just kind of expanded and exploded from there. But it's it's kind of amazing to me how you know this chance collection of possibilities just happened to all come together in the right moment for me to sell a story idea. There isn't always a reason why they reject uh, your your ideas or, or or a good reason. But did you get any feedback about why those all those things you prepared were were not right for the show? Oh yeah, I mean that was one thing that uh, I found really really useful working on, especially when I was pitching for for Voyager. Was that yeah. all of the writers I worked with? It was, uh, it was Brian Fuller was there, Joe Manowski, uh, Raf Green, uh, again yeah. uh, Brandon as well. All of the writers that I worked with in various ways, pitching and, and just discussing story ideas, were all so generous about how the the story idea would work. And they would it wouldn't be kind of like that's no good. Next, it would be okay. that's no good because we're doing this. It's yeah, you know, yeah, you know yeah. oh that's a great idea, but you know what, we're shooting that episode right now, or. You know, yeah. we can't we can't do that because we have different plans for these characters. So every time, every time I went away, I had I had a better idea of what I was doing wrong. I felt like kind of it's like throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded, right? You know, and after a while, you kind of go, just if I go a little bit left, I'm getting closer and closer to the bullseye. <laughs> right. And you know, and, and I didn't feel like I, I was kind of throwing stuff blindfolded. After a while, I felt like I was just like you know telepathically going, "This is where the center is." Thud, right there we go. And I've got it this time. You know, and, and that was it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes it was crazy. I remember after Voyager finished, I, I also went on to pitch for Enterprise. Unfortunately, uh, wasn't as successful with that, but I can remember distinctly um, pitching an episode of Enterprise. And uh, I think it was Raf Green I was pitching to, and he he just laughed his head off. He said, "We're shooting that episode right now." Oh well. And I was like, "What?" And he and, and I, I pitched this idea. I said, "I said this is I want to do Apollo 13. I want to do an Apollo 13 sort of pastiche." And I said, "And it's Reed and Trip Tucker trapped in a shuttlecraft, and it's like Apollo 13." And he started yeah. laughing. I'm like, "Why is that funny?" He's like, "Because we're doing this episode called Shuttle Pod One right now." Yeah, yeah. And it was the and it was just I was like, have you got telepaths working there? Did you pluck this idea from my brain? And it was yeah. just just a you know a, a coincidence that these things came together. Is that sometimes with, with a limited sort of palette of ideas and possibilities, you're going to pitch stuff that is kind of the same, you know? So yeah, yeah. it was crazy. But um, but in a way, I was very heartened by that because I said, well, you know, that means I'm almost in the right spot because if I'm sure. pitching you a story that you bought from somebody else like a month ago. The next story I'll pitch you might be the one that you buy from me. Right, if I can get it in, yeah, on time. Yeah. Uh, I wonder too if the specificity of the setting and the time period would lead to, you know, Star Trek fans and writers thinking, oh, well, if they're in the 22nd century, then they're going to have to do this. They're going to have to do this. Um, I pointed out, I think, in our last talk that both one and memorial are uh, darker stories and they both feature the crew experiencing delusions and questioning what's real and what isn't. Um, and in this episode, Janeway brings up herself the fact that this isn't the first time that they've had their minds screwed with and, and rewritten. And it occurred to me that that's a, that's a, very, that's a recurring trope for a Voyager story. Um, and I was trying to think about like other Voyager stories. Like what do you think makes a Voyager episode specifically, or at least um, what ideas were you thinking about when you were pitching uh, for Voyager? Well, I, I mean, I, I go for kind of not just specifically like a Voyager story, but like a, on a wider sort of track of what I think what makes the first question is what makes this a Star Trek story? Yeah. And then, you know, and then you kind of that, that's the first filter you go through. Does this feel like Star Trek? And there's like, now, does this feel like a Voyager story or would it, you know, a Voyager story has a different tonality to a TNG story yeah, to sure. a DS9 story to Enterprise, Lower Decks, Discovery, what have you, you know, each show's got its unique character. Yeah. I think with Voyager stories, there was always a kind of sense 
uh, a sense of wonder and a sense of discovery going on in the narrative huh. is that you know the, is that often you would see you know our characters encounter a problem and it might be you know a, a threat or it might be something they don't understand it might be somebody who dupes them into believing something because that person wants something from them our characters mm -hmm. find out and then the kind of the next act is the characters find out what's really going on and the the kind of stakes are raised and in the last act of the story, you know, there's a resolution and a kind of, okay, now we've figured out exactly what's happening or we've solved the problem or we've got out of this trap and, and we'll move on because it's a Voyage is a Road movie story, right? It's like, it's an yeah. ongoing story. It's like, you know, it's like the Incredible Hulk or the Littlest Hobo, right? It's those shows where, you know, <laughs> our characters are carrying on through the story and they, they stop somewhere, they help somebody with a problem or they solve a problem of their own and then they move on to the next place. So there has yeah. to be that kind of, there has to be a sense of kind of forward momentum in the Voyager story, I think is a key thing to that. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the episode. Of course, we're talking about Memorial. It's the 14th episode of the sixth season. It first aired on February 2nd of the year 2000. And the teleplay was by Robin Berger, who was a staff writer on Voyager's sixth season. She also wrote the episodes Fair Haven and Live Fast and Prosper for Voyager's sixth season. Prior to her work on Voyager, she wrote the third season TNG episode The Hunted. She was also a writer and producer on Quantum Leap, and she wrote several episodes of Earth Final Conflict, and she was a writer and story consultant for shows in the 80s like and the 90s like MacGyver, Matlock, and Renegade. The story for the episode was by Brandon Braga, who was, of course, an executive producer and writer for the series, and, of course, from an original idea by James Swallow. Directed by Alan Croker, a very prolific director for the Trek franchise, he directed 38 episodes in total, including the series finales of DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. He's directed for a number of other series since his TV career began in the 80s, such as the Battlestar Galactica reboot, Firefly, Supernatural, and Chuck. Uh, we are not given a star date for this episode, and your assignment, James, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Memorial. So, uh, essentially, the, the the core concept of the story is uh, the Voyager crew are suffering from traumatic flashbacks of being uh, of being in a war, but it's a war that they were never in. It's a battle they've never fought, and they have to discover what the source of these memories are and uh, solve that problem. That sounds great. I'll take it. <laughs> we'll write that up. Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. And they're mostly about TV, to be honest. Uh, Paris remarks that TVs in the 50s did not have remote controls, but he's not quite right. The Zenith company developed a TV remote called the Lazy Bones in 1950, though it was connected to the set by a wire. And Zenith tried again in 1956 with the Zenith Space Command, which was a wireless remote that relied on ultrasonic harmonics to signal changes in the set. The sounds that it made led to it being nicknamed the clicker and the name stuck remotes would become more widespread during the 60s as transistors became more affordable the programs that we see on tom's tv set include a 1939 mary melodies cartoon daffy duck and the dinosaur and an episode of the untouchables a show produced by desilu studios which was sub subsequently purchased by paramount which explains its inclusion here and this is the first episode of Star Trek to feature hockey. Uh, Paris would later program a hockey scenario for the holodeck, referred to in subsequent episodes. And I always find it interesting when they make characters on Trek sports fans. There's always a question of whether a, a certain sport has survived to the 24th century or not. Um, for example, Zisco is a baseball fan, but baseball is basically dead in the 24th century. And O'Brien and Bashir square off in racquetball, but the court is radically different 
uh, in the 24th century to how it is uh, seen in the 21st century. Um, and you get other mentions to things, but I always wonder if a certain Star Trek character is going to be a football fan uh, or an American football fan or, or what have you. Well, we've certainly seen in uh, in Picard, we saw Rios, Cristobal Rios being a soccer football right. player. Right, which is kind of cool. I mean, um, speaking as somebody who uh, is a hockey fan, I'm I'm pleased to see that that, that Tom is kind of like you know uh, flying the flag for that. But I have to say, I was a little bit surprised considering, um, let's say, hockey's not the most gentle of um, <laughs> right. sports. Yeah. And in the in in the kind of enlightened future of of Star Trek, I was quite surprised that they would have a game where you know you could potentially be in the audience screaming at the bone. Really? You know, <laughs> yeah, right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't start. I think you know. Really, is is it like a kind of is it a kind of gentler version of hockey that they play in, in the future? I don't know. We always hear about the brutality of Parisi's squares, but we never see the game played. And so <laughs> I wonder if uh, you know, being a three-time Academy champion, that's why uh, Harry Kim would get into hockey with Tom. I've got to think. You know, God, can you imagine Nausikans or Klingons playing ice hockey? That would oh, be it, yeah, uh, challenging. You'd need different weight classes, I think, for for hockey in that case. Yeah, because you know, I mean, I can you, I can imagine you know um, a bunch of Klingons turning up at the Saddle Dome in Calgary or somewhere like that and just absolutely <laughs> loving every minute of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think we get an idea about whether hockey is like uh, an active and a live sport uh, in the future, but Tom certainly does love it, and it's great to hear that you're a fan of hockey, uh, being somebody from the UK. Um, I don't really know where Tom is from. I think Jerry Taylor uh, pins his birthplace as uh, California in in her books or novels. But of course, uh, being the son of uh, a uh, Starfleet captain and later admiral, he probably traveled around a lot. But it's it's interesting to think how in the future that kind of regionality wouldn't necessarily apply to people's love of things. I mean, even just um, satellite TV and the internet has created a lot of um, a soccer or football fans uh, in America and, and around the world. Mm, you'd have to i mean we we see um in terms of baseball teams we see was it the pike city pioneers i think was mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. uh, on the planet from the planet Cestus three right so would it right. be we'd have uh you'd have planet side teams rather than teams that would be based in a particular city yeah just people uh picking up sports uh, alien sports you know sports from other cultures or other colonies um of course, that doesn't explain why. It doesn't explain why baseball's dead. I know Michael Piller loves baseball, but he kills it in his in his first script for for the show. So I don't know. It's interesting to me though that the, the, the kind of Cisco brings it back almost as, you know, because we're living in an era where baseball is still a living, breathing sport. But from yeah. him, his point of view, it's this, you know, it's like somebody getting into kind of medieval chamber music. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bringing something back to life that hasn't been like you know a thing for, yeah. a, for a very long time. Yeah, there's a there's a, a nostalgic sort of element to it, but hopefully, um, uh, with the uh, with the uh, the death of the uh, of the emissary, perhaps uh, baseball has become uh, widespread among the Federation. We don't know. I kind of like the idea that um, Cisco, as the emissary on Bajor, maybe reintroduced bas- uh, baseball to Bajorans. Oh, it's like a primarily a, a Bajoran activity. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You can imagine that you can imagine that they were kind of like, well, if the emissary thinks this is cool, maybe we should. It's try. part of our culture. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the guest stars in the episode. There's really only one. Uh, LL Ginter appears as Savdra, and Ginter has been making appearances in film and television since the early '90s. He's also appeared in the films Pearl Harbor, Argo, Beverly Hills Cop Three, and Gattaca, uh, presumably as a tough guy, like he is in this episode. We've talked previously about what makes a Voyager episode a Voyager episode, and I guess I don't 
know the exact formula, but it probably involves uh, mind melds, photon torpedoes, black coffee, and at least one perpetual ensign. Um, you mentioned before the idea of of solving a mystery and it being sort of a road movie. Um, but I feel like this, this type of episode, one in which our crew uh, arrives much too late to affect an event or a tragedy, I feel like that idea gets done... Uh, at least twice that I can think of with both uh, Memorial and the third season episode, Remember, specifically, which is also an excellent episode. And I was thinking that there's more than a few episodes of Voyager where there there is some sort of tragedy or injustice, and there's really nothing that they can do about it. The crew has to uh, learn about it and kind of soldier on um, or just mourn what happened. Uh, the death of the Silverblood crew, um, the death of Harry Kim and the other Voyager um, Caretaker, distant origin, Jetrol, one small step. Voyager often seems to be there just to acknowledge that something has happened and then they have to hit the road again. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. But I think there's also, you have to consider that the it, it, it's the observer effect of these events, right? Is that our, our heroes are changed by the fact that they participate in these events, even if it is just as kind of an observer, as someone who is, to pardon the pun, memorializing an event yeah. that's taken place. You know, yeah. um, being being involved in that is something that will change you personally so i think it's like you know we we have these external events that have taken place our heroes can't change anything but we see how the perception of those events change them as people moving forward yeah and i think part of that is the sort of the liberal premise of trek in that we want to you know as i suppose western citizens learn about other cultures and sometimes that includes learning about uh the bad things that have happened or the bad things that our culture has perpetrated on those cultures. But um, I think it's also a function of the premise, the idea that the opportunities for recurring elements and enemies are going to be limited because they're they're just always on the move. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an essential part of a, a Voyager tale. Um, there's a line from Chakotay in this episode where he says um, quite angrily, uh, you know, why should anybody have to experience an atrocity that they didn't commit? And I know that he's emotional because of the circumstances, but I think the answer to that is clear, even in our own century. Um, we don't have the technology to beam experiences into people's minds, but every memorial we construct, every survivor account, uh, or the stories of victims from an event, they're all designed to do exactly that, force us to confront and in some ways relive a tragedy to prevent them from ever happening again. Mm, I think in that moment, you know, he's... Uh, quite rightly feeling kind of violated by what's happened because he's yeah. been forced to, to experience as all the crew have been forced to experience these terrible, you know, soul shrinking events that uh, occurred, you know, all these years earlier. Yeah. Um, and he has a good, he has a good point, you know, because he didn't ask for that. Uh, he didn't come into it. Uh, he wasn't, you know, permission was taken from him. And that's kind of the, the, the problem that's solved at the end of the story is they realize that the memorial itself is not functioning. And what you should get is kind of like a terms and conditions before That's true. you get any of this stuff. Is are you willing to perceive this? You know, are you willing to look at it? And you can imagine that the the culture that built this this thing would have done that and said so people would have come to see this thing and say, you know, you are it's like if in in the real world, if if you ever visit the the Holocaust Museum yeah. before you go in, you know, there is a kind of advisory saying, you know, you are about to go and see stuff that is terrible and, and it may affect you deeply and you, you know, you need to think seriously about whether this is something you want to be exposed to. And the memorial should have that, but it doesn't. And that's how our, how characters are drawn into this mystery of why are we experiencing these things. And so Chico's reactionary, I think, is, is an honest one. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, you know, I think he sees the truth of what Janeway says is that we don't have the right to, to turn this thing off and to yeah. deny, the, deny the purpose of it is, if anything, we'll fix it to make sure that it works correctly and that people can have the experience or choose not to as they see fit. 
Yeah, I yeah I think that um, the parallels to the remembrance of of the Holocaust and other events are clear. I, I still remember the chilling footage that they would show us of concentration camps uh, when I was in school, and you know it's it's horrifying. But I like that Janeway acknowledges and takes on that responsibility of you know continuing allowing the message to continue. Um, obviously, adding that disclaimer, but um, as being the ones that survive, you know, having that responsibility to um, to to pass on the story, make sure that it that it never happens again. Um, something else that I find significant in the episode is that the civilization that created the monument is apparently gone. You know, we don't see them anywhere. And Voyager doesn't take a lot of time to look into it because hit the road. But apparently in 300 years, the Nakan have vanished, at least from this part of space. And we can only speculate as to why. And maybe the tensions and the conflicts that caused the tragedy that's being memorialized were symptomatic of a larger fatal problem in their society. Um, Not only is the monument the marker of a tragedy, but it stands as sort of a cenotaph for the entire culture, at least for the crew of Voyager. Yeah, I mean, because we don't, you know, is the planet that we visit, is that actually an current homeworld? I mean, I, I always had the sense that it wasn't, that it was like a colony or some some world on the fringes yeah, rather yeah. than, you know, the, the actual planet that they originated. So, you know, we, we don't know if the if the Nakan have, as you say, you know, been been consumed by what, what whatever this conflict they had was, or, or have they have they left this area of space? Has some other tragedy occurred to them? Or, or is it just that they turned up on a day that nobody's there? You know, maybe yeah. maybe this is a pilgrimage site for them. You know, maybe uh, people regularly come there, but our Voyager characters are there when no one else is around. So we don't know how that collects to the, the larger scope of, of the culture that created this device and, and left it there. Yeah. I love these stories where characters get ideas or thoughts kind of beamed into their heads. And you always wonder about the sort of Well, I think it makes a point that like the general uh, technological level of a culture doesn't necessarily – there's peaks and valleys in there. So, you know, if the Nakan were a a colonizing species uh, that maybe never got that far from their home world, their warp drives aren't that great. They do have like a technology that beams thoughts into your head, which seems kind of powerful. But maybe the human brain isn't as complicated as warp travel. When you look at something like the inner light, you know, the whole struggle is that like this race can't get off this planet – um, they're all going to die on this planet because their their sun is is going nova. But but they do have the ability to like put an entire seventy years of a man's life, you know, into a, a beam that can be beamed into somebody's head. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I've always liked stories where the characters question the nature of their reality, or where mm-hmm. where the where they're they're shown a different reality. I mean, Inner Light is a perfectly good example of that. Is that you know we see the entire synthetic sort of life that Picard lives and he's like, was that, a, was that a life of a real person that he's, yeah, yeah. is he, is he like a recording of something that actually happened or was it a kind of synthetic creation that's meant to suggest, you know, an existence. It's a similar thing with, uh, with the, the memories that you see in Memorial is, uh, is that kind of like a Ken Burns documentary about like, you know, okay, here's what we think happened during these events. And this is, these are curated simulations of, of what we think occurs or are the characters literally experiencing the memories of people who existed in that time period. Yeah. Certainly, certainly for me, when I was conceiving of the idea, that was my intention is that the memories, the memorial projects are the real deal, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so what you see in that moment, what you experience, that's what actually happened. It's not, you know, uh, somebody's idea, a second or third hand version of it. Yeah. 
there's um there's kind of a a, a nod to that I think in um, scenes like when uh, when Harry is working in the Jeffrey's tube and he starts to have kind of a panic attack and he he sort of crawls on his belly to to get out of this Jeffrey's tube and it seems like a strange set of events but later in the episode. Uh, when Harry and Tuvok go looking for the bodies of, of the people that he supposedly killed, um, and you realize, like, as they're crawling into this cave on their on their bellies, it's he was having that experience when crawling in the mm. Jeffreys tube. It's it's a really great parallel. And I, I think the uh, the other idea that again, this isn't something that really kind of is expressly shown in the story, but I like the concept that the memorial would would choose a memory that would would dovetail with something in your own personal experience. Yeah. So perhaps there is something in Harry's life that he has, like a, a, a claustrophobia might have been something that he experienced. And, and so the memorial picks something that would connect with him. So you would feel a personal connection to the events that take place on a very visceral level. Yeah. And that's, you know, your, your experience of what this means becomes much more personal to you. Yeah, it, they, and they fit, they fit that really well for the entire crew. Like uh, Chakotay finds himself in a role where he's carrying out and kind of questioning his superior's orders. Um, Harry Kim, for all of his heroism, is is young and scared, and he's sort of overwhelmed by the experience. And Neelix, Neelix is focused specifically on the defenseless, the children, the wounded. And I also love that once Janeway begins uh, experiencing it, she's presented with this this question of responsibility uh, where they are trying to cover up what's happening. And as somebody who isn't the leader of the, she doesn't have that role in the scenario, but she's still in a position of authority. She's like, you know, whoa, whoa no, no, you can't do this. Like we have to, you know, something happened here and people have to know about it. Um, I love that idea that they, like you pointed out, like they are kind of both themselves, but also the roles uh, in the, the historical roles in the scenario as well. Yeah, there's there's some parallel nature between the two of them, and I have to say um, that scene with Janeway is is my favourite scene in in the entire episode. Yeah, because I've I've always felt that um, Janeway to me is my favourite Star Trek captain is Kirk, but I've always felt that Janeway is very close in terms of kind of persona and kind of the the sort of direction the character has. So I always felt like she when she did. And what I would think of as the Kirkian kind of scenes <laughs> is what I always felt. I really enjoyed the kind of character's performance. And I can remember saying to Brandon, you know, I want, I want a scene that I want a scene where Jamie says, what gives you the right to yeah. do this? Yeah. And, and that's the moment, you know, and I always felt like Shanna does a great job of that when, when he nails those scenes in, in TOS. And I think that Kate McGrew comes through with a similar energy, but from a different place, but with equal amounts of energy and force behind it. Yeah. And that moment in Memorial, when she calls, calls him to task and she says, you know, we murdered these people. How can we, we can't stand by and let this just fade away. You can't disintegrate the bodies and nobody will ever know it. This, this will not stand. Yeah. And I just absolutely love that moment. Cause to me, it feels like a pure Star Trek moment there. Yeah. I love to hear you say that. I've often thought of Janeway. I think who is, I think my favorite captain as kind of Kirk revisited or, or a Kirk 2.0, um, knowing now what we know it, in the modern era with modern sensibilities. Um, and, and that is, it's, it's a chilling scene, uh, where they're just vaporizing these bodies. Um, and it's a great standard for the way that governments or regimes try to cover up atrocities. 
uh, and the reason that we need monuments and remembrance in the first place. It's something I've thought a lot about in relation to the Trek universe. Like somebody, somebody being vaporized when they're shot with a phaser or a disruptor, it's not anything new in Star Trek, but the implications of that are sweeping. Uh, you know, what happens to habeas corpus? You know, we see, we see this played out in the episode. Somebody specifically using technology to erase the record of a crime. Um, murder in the future, it, it's obviously illegal, but totally destroying the evidence of a crime would have to carry a heavy penalty as well. Yeah, there's, there is something quite sinister about the idea that you could, you know, if you have war with no bodies... It yeah. becomes clean, and if it becomes yeah. clean, it becomes easy. Yeah. And if it becomes easy, you know, now you're on the road to, you know, if you, if you don't have to look at the body of somebody you killed, it becomes easier for you to kill the next person, the next person, and, and then <laughs> yeah. you, you're going down a road that is ero eroding your moral core, you know. And so yeah. these things are, it's a very sinister little idea that kind of is ticking away there at the heart of some of the technological ideas in Star Trek is how do you, how do you experience that, and how do you guard against it? Yeah, it it reminds me of uh, sometimes you'll see in a in a spy novel or a crime novel the idea of um, somebody committing a crime and then there being a witness and you know the, the crime accelerates to murder because it's like I you know I can't also can't have this witness see what I did so now I'm going to kill this person uh, because of what I'm doing and um, it's just sort of a similar thing it you know it reminds me of the fact that. You know, we are seeing in the episode, um, there, there's there's an element of um, the people who created the memorial are obviously the people who survived that, quote unquote, won, so to speak, I guess. Um, when I think about this episode in relation to remember, um, you know, that's an episode where the, the, the woman who's carrying these memories of these people that they killed, you know, wants this idea to be heard because it's been sort of covered up and swept under the rug. Um, but in Memorial, we're left with the mystery, you know, we're left to wonder at the conflict in the Nakan society and we're disconnected from any motivations. It's a senseless tragedy, but the monument forces you to relive specifically the role of the aggressors in the conflict. Um, and you only by proxy sort of experience the pain and fear of the victims. So I wonder if that's sort of a, the perspective of the aggressors is, is something that they're presenting to sort of, um, kind of chastise themselves and, and their role in, in what happened. Yeah. I mean, the kind of the, the dark suggestion there is that nobody survived from the other group of people to tell their story. Yeah. When you see like a, a memorial, uh, um, Holocaust memorials or films based on that, you're often experiencing it from, you know, the, the perspective of, um, the undesirables that were, you know, put to death in the Holocaust. And you, you don't really, you rarely see like a, a Nazi perspective or a concentration camp guard perspective. Yeah. Cause I mean, the inference is here is that, that you know, the Nakan were, as you say, the aggressors in this situation. And at yeah. some future point they decided, you know, we, this, this terrible atrocity has been committed and we have to atone for that. And the memorial is, it's not only the, them atoning as a society, but also saying to everybody who comes afterwards, you know, like, come experience this, come see this terrible thing that we did. Yeah. And, you know, we can, we can know that we are better people now because we've got past that, but we must always remember what we've done because, you know, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, and, yeah. and the memorial is, you know, it's not a theme park ride, right? It's not a, it's not a movie. It's an no. experiential thing that, you know, that you would, you would go into this and be, and be forever changed quite likely. Yeah. For that reason, um, I think there's the parallels in this are great as well to, um, to Vietnam war movies and uh, Vietnam war fiction. 
um, which are also seen often from the side of, you know, American or allied servicemen. Um, it's a great parallel in that Vietnam is often described as the first war fought on television where the public could see atrocities and violence and they weren't abstract. And Tom, Tom first starts experiencing the flashback when TV is introduced into his home. Uh, and TV and video is how we most often experience those kinds of tragedies, be it through film or uh, documentary or the news. Yeah, I mean, th and that was definitely a touchstone. Um, I can remember when the, the initial conversation I was having um, about this with Brian is we talked about the My Lai Massacre as like a kind of as a real world touchstone. Yeah. And, yeah. and I talked about, you know, um, my experience growing up in Europe with um, war memorials in every in every town and village mm -hmm. for, for people mm -hmm. who'd who died in the in the first and second war, world wars you know part of the inspiration from this came from uh, something that would fixed in my mind as as a, as a young child is seeing the war memorial in in my local hometown and and uh, going up to it and being afraid that i would see my own name etched on this list wow and that some and that somehow that you know that that experience would be as a kid i was thinking that somebody just like me had been had been claimed by this war yeah and that sort of idea, you know, sort of struck me very deeply. And I think part of that, I definitely play out a little bit of that idea in this because it is about the effect of something that a name on a war memorial has gone through. Each yeah. one of those names is a real person who's experienced an atrocity or has experienced warfare, has had these life-changing experiences happen to him in the course of war. And I think memorial is the science fiction take on that is saying, well, what if you went one step further? What if you literally walked a mile in the shoes of the people who who went through this and how would that change you? Yeah, it's it's great to know that so much thought goes into the writing of just a single episode. And I think that that, that My Lai parallel is clear. And it, the, you know, the memorial reminds me a lot of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington as well. Although if the Vietnam Memorial mentally put you into apocalypse now, I'm not sure how that would be received. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I can remember visiting uh, Washington, D.C. And, and kind of doing the tours of, of the different memorials there. And it's it's the stark difference between you, the World War II Memorial, um, the, the Korean War Memorial, and then the Vietnam War Memorial is that, you know, the, the differences between them show the differences in the people who were involved in those conflicts and, and the yeah. way that they reflected back into, into the society that we live in now. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to forget that our characters in Star Trek are, are soldiers as well as scientists and explorers. And I think it's really significant that it's it's Neelix who's not only greatly affected by his experience with the memorial, but in the end, he's the one that's fully on board with keeping it going. Uh, you know, he immediately steps up um, against Chakotay's protestations and the protestations of the of the bridge crew and says, no, we gotta, we have to keep this going. He's somebody who's seen atrocity in war firsthand, and he's not a soldier. He's not comfortable with the idea of acceptable loss or the idea that innocents die in war. Yeah, I mean, that's harking back to, is it Jatrell, the episode where, yeah. you know, we, we learn a lot about like the some of the darker past. He's, he's such a happy-go-lucky kind of character. And then we see that yeah. but he's yeah. come from a really dark place. And, uh, and, and you, you, you can have to wonder, you know, is, is the reason that he's such an upbeat guy is that he's pushing against the darkness that he's had in his life before that. So, yeah, it feels to me 100%, you know, true to him that he would be there on, this, on the side of Janeway saying, no, we have to keep this thing going because the message it gives to the universe is just too important to be silenced. Yeah. Uh, throughout the episode, there is... Um... I think great depictions of the the effects of PTSD, especially with Neelix, 
Um, there are some occasions in Trek where we see our characters being deeply affected by the violence and stress of their jobs, but it's pretty sunny generally being a, a Starfleet officer. Um, but the memorial in this instance gives us a chance to see our characters reacting to the effects of violence and tragedy that we don't often see, you know, when you're, <laughs> when your friend and uh, and coworker is killed by an oil slick or uh, somebody gets turned into a crystal and crushed, we often just move on. But you have to imagine that the effects of being in Starfleet and also just facing the unknown and being in deep space has to um, have an effect that we sometimes edit out uh, on Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of uh, quite out there. You know, when 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 some of the strange things, if you you've been struck by lightning or killed by a, a reincarnated Greek god, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> that's that's you know, I mean, it's still dead as dead, right? But it's still kind of it seems very unusual. And then and then we see something like memorial, or it's taken to its kind of more more direct extreme. If you look at uh, the siege of AR five five eight, the yeah, yeah. got the title correct, the Deep Space Nine episode, which is completely unflinching in its sort of de- depiction of what it's like to be on the front line in the trenches, yeah, you know, where we, we see a kind of much harsher kind of grittier view of, of, of what life and death is like in the, in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Some of my favorite moments or episodes are times when they, when they kind of dig into that, um, the, uh, fifth season episode, um, night, uh, where Voyager is is trapped in this uh, the void that they have to sort of cross and they can't see any stars and they're just literally confronted. It's a chance to like, you know, get into the psyche of the Voyager crew and see how they really feel about being, you know, 70,000 light years from home. And you've got Janeway just, you know, like a, like somebody in a, in a quarantine, you know, just locked up in her quarters, mm-hmm. uh, not talking to anybody and just, uh, just eating her own heart out over her decisions that she's made. Yeah. I mean, because the Voyager crew are, you know, the farthest men from home. Yeah. And, and uh, although that kind of like that idea kind of will gradually kind of fades away as the, as the show goes 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 forward, we do occasionally see it sort of pop up. And I think that that emotional distance to me was was always fascinating. And the, the idea that it was bubbling around, around underneath everything else that we're seeing. Yeah. You know, you're on that ship for that long, you a small vessel like that, you would eventually know everybody. It would be like a small town. Right. You know, everybody, you know, all their foibles, you know, everything about them. Yeah. And, and and what does that breed? That breeds contempt. It breeds tension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, and even even the the people with the better angels, their nature. It's it's difficult to live in a life like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, how would that express itself? And I think you know, um, in some of the pitch meetings that Brian Fuller and I had, I remember we would we would talk about this kind of idealized dark Voyager, where you know we we would joke about kind of. <laughs> What, what if we really kind of like di- turned the dial up to 11 and, and went and took down the darker route? And it was like, sure. we'd never get to tell these kind of stories. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but, um, but it's an interesting thought experiment to sort of play that out, to ask those questions, you know, and, sure. and even just show a little, a little kind of those darker shadings in these kind of stories. Yeah, that's more the uh, the avenue of a of a Battlestar Galactica where everybody's uh, drinking themselves unconscious every night and fighting each other in boxing rings. But uh, yeah, Trek, we still got work to do. We gotta we gotta save I, planets. I, I, <laughs> I think a little of that comes from uh, my my kind of innate British science fiction nihilism. Sure. You know, having, having been uh, raised on a diet of shows like uh, Blake Seven, which was kind of one of the pretty much the, the it looks like the Dirty Dozen in space with a bit of Robin Hood thrown in there, but it's actually quite grim and nihilist. Yes, I think there's a there's a little bit of that's a little bit of me kind of shining through there. But at the same time, you know, that's one of the things I love about Star Trek is you can embrace 
those two different poles that you can say we're at the one end things are dark and grim but you know we're always striving and hoping to be better that's that's one of the things that's at the core of star trek is it's not about becoming perfect it's about the journey towards that and we're always constantly striving to be better to 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 step away from the dark towards the light yeah yeah, it's yeah. They really let you know uh, what you're watching in the first episode of Blake Seven when the oppressive regime frames Blake for uh, child molestation or whatever. It's like, okay, all right, that's the kind of world that we're living in here. Yeah, we're we're not we're not going to see that on Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, that's, not, if, that's not going to be Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, even you know, I mean, well, having said that, I mean, you know, if we look at uh, Picard, Picard is a darker show that does have like you sure, know, uh, sure, and it, and and one of the things I like about it is it does challenge some of the sort of sacred cows of Star Trek is that, you know, the Federation and Starfleet is this infallible, perfect organization. And Picard says, actually it isn't. And, yeah. and, you know, and people can make bad decisions and they can, you know, they can leave behind the, 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 the hopes and dreams and the intentions of the founders of that organization and move in the wrong direction. Yeah. And the question is, do you want to stick with that? Or do you want to, you know, try and pull things back? And I love the fact that, that, uh, that Star Trek's at a place in its life where we can explore that stuff and it doesn't feel false. It feels true and authentic. Yeah. It's a great idea, this idea that they are reliving this thing that never happened to them. But I do have technical questions about how it operates. And I guess since I've got one of the writers of the episode here, this would be a good time to explore those. Uh, it seems like, you know, I'm not quite sure how it works exactly when you experience these emotions. You know, the Delta Flyer went close to this planet. They were surveying this planet and probably experienced something and then flew back and forgot about what happened to them. Like, is it only happen or do you only really experience it when you are within a certain range? And then once you leave that area, do those memories in time fade or will they carry these these memories with them forever? I think the, the the way I imagined it was that the the memorial kind of inserts like a package of memories into okay. into your mind. So, you know, if you're within its radius, it's you know you would be scanned in some fashion, and it would pick a package of memories that is kind of close to your sure. personal scenario and that's like, for you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So that's like that's deposited in your mind, and then it would be how you how you or as a human or or as what whatever species you happen to be right how would you experience and process that information maybe yeah. to begin with you know you'd have a couple of bad dreams until and, and until the intensity of it ramps up and i guess the closer you get to it sure the more the more intense that energy is until you would experience it as kind of like as a, as a sort of waking vision as a waking dream yeah i wonder if there would be an imperative then to because uh, obviously you're close if you are experiencing, you know, the the effects or the or the signal, uh, an imperative to to get you to to go to the memorial to see what it is, and that's kind of the end of the, you know, the finale of the of the experience. There, um, I was just going to say really quick that there, I think this is a great showcase for um, the actors in this episode and the uh, ensemble of Harry, Tom, and, and Neelix. Um, and there's that scene in the briefing room where they're all. Uh, sort of recovering their memories. We're getting an idea of what they're involved in, but we still don't know why. Um, and the the dialogue kind of does double duty because it fills us in on the situation, but you know the actors show how they're affected by what happened. And it made me wonder, were they sort of programmed by the monolith to 
you know, establish the facts and the dramatic personae of the tragedy, because obviously just, you know, the nuts and bolts of doing TV, this is sort of like an info dump for us about what the scenario is. But they, when they all kind of get together, I wonder if like, when you assemble people who have been affected by this, they unconsciously construct the story of what happened uh, and the players involved for people who haven't been affected by the monolith. Like this is where uh, Janeway and other people who weren't there go, oh, okay, there's a narrative here of of, of the Nakan and what's happened. Yeah, I, that is a, another one of the great scenes where, where you that scene starts off as one thing and it ends up becoming something completely different. Yeah, they there's become that. totally consumed, like emotionally, by by the, the recounting of this. Yeah, and then for a moment, there's the, there's kind of that moment where, where they lose themselves in it. And, and you can see the other characters who aren't connected to it yet going, well, what is happening here? You know, what is right. happening to our friends? But there's also sort of, like you say, the, the narrative of it starts to unfold. It's almost like... Um, you remember those toys used to have a little chip in it and the toy would say a line of dialogue. But if you had two toys, they would say two different lines of dialogue. And, and if you had like three or four of them, you know, they would play out a little scene. And it is almost like the idea of these, each one of these characters has a, a piece of the jigsaw puzzle of this narrative. And once they lock together, it unlocks more. Yeah. So each one has a piece of the story, but once they're with another person, that other person's piece of a story unlocks more of their story. Yeah. And they begin to, they, you know, the, the narrative begins to interact and it unfolds and it becomes more of a living, breathing thing. Well, you know, that's what it's all about, about presenting this as a living, breathing story right. to the people who go to the go to see the, the memorial. Yeah. So that by the end of the experience, the, the idea is if you experience this correctly, you know, you would, this would be paced out and you would, you would know what you were experiencing. And I imagine it like, like a pilgrimage, you know, is that closer you get, you would, you would go through the intensity of this experience and you would have this at the end of this, this kind of catharsis, yeah. When you visit the memorial and you go, okay, now the experience is over and now the understanding has been transmitted to you. Now you know what this is all about and you can put it past you and assimilate it and learn from it and then move on. But for our characters, because they're missing key parts of this process, to them, they kind of get it all in the wrong order. Yeah, it's really frustrating it's to them. Stress, yeah, it's frustrating and stressful and, and terrifying for them because they don't know what they're experiencing until very late in the story. That's such a cool sci-fi idea and it's so it's so cool that you can get even like a fraction of that like onto a weekly tv series obviously if it was a novel you could just you know you could really fill that out and, and explain what's happening there but i think that that comes across um in a very suggestive way in the episode and when they're like in character as the nakan soldiers they also seem to be like expressing or parroting the kind of emotions or opinions that the actual participants might have had. There's a lot of repetition of phrases like, we had no right to, they were unarmed, we, or we had no choice. They're kind of like these conflicting expressions that don't let them off the hook necessarily, but they show that the perpetrators of the massacre were themselves you know, very conflicted and victimized by what happened. Yeah, because there, there is the sense that um, the characters, as in the Voyager characters, but also the characters, as in the characters we see in the flashback, yeah. everybody's kind of searching for the truth of this. Yeah. And, and like, unlike all things, you know, where there are lots of participants, the truth is not from one point of view. It's a, it's a collective assemblage of different points of view. And, and it's about finding all the pieces. And at the end of the story, you know, when, when they have all the pieces, they go, okay, this is what, this is what this is actually about. Now we understand. Yeah, but but the as I say, the early part of the story is they they only have fragments of this, and they don't understand what they're experiencing. You know, is 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 this some sort of attack? I mean, the you know the I love the initial idea is that the characters are even thinking, did we actually do this? Is yeah, this something? Right. 
you know, is this that they don't even realize early on that it's somebody else's memories? You know, the, you start to think, is is this me? Did I do this terrible thing? Yeah. You know, they're in the tunnel and and, and shooting on these unarmed people, and, and you can imagine somebody who's he's like, you know, he's a he's a nice guy, he's a deeply sensitive person, and then he's going through this experience, asking himself, what if I actually did this? And this information's been erased from me because we've seen that in Star Trek before. You know, we've seen characters having an experience and that experience is erased because for whatever reason, you know, aliens don't want you to know that we lived on that planet or this traumatic thing <laughs> happened to you and we're trying to protect you by deleting yeah. that memory. Yeah. But here I can just thinking, you know, what if I actually did something terrible? And especially the the thing that takes place, the tragedy that takes place in the story is so against the kind of morals and choices that our Starfleet characters go for, you know, yeah. they would never do anything like this. And to and to think, what if I did? That's such a traumatic experience. Uh, I think Janeway is great as always in this episode. Um, I love that she's willing to believe her officers. Um, she's even having a little fun <laughs> until the, the some of the few light points in the episode until the visions hit her as well. And her pure disgust over what Savdra ends up doing on the battlefield and her powerlessness to stop it is uh, great. Great acting by Kate Mulgrew. I also like... Um, when she's touring all the affected crew members on her own ship uh, as they're getting closer to the memorial and she takes the time to talk with that one ensign to comfort him. Um, that's not something that needed to be included in the script, but I'm glad it's there. I think it's clearly meant to contrast the brutality of the Nakan soldiers, but it's uh, it's a really nice moment. Yeah, that's very much a, a, a moment where you see that the, the, the idea of Voyager as a family and that, that she yeah. is this mother leader figure and, you know, it's it's. Uh, you wonder if a, a different captain might not have kind of carried that scene with the same emotional weight that she does. Yeah, the Patton scene where he just slaps the guy and he's like, "Come on, get back to work." Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's the absolute. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Seven's interaction with Neelix is so great too. Seven's, I mean, barely in the episode. And I think on another day, this could have been chiefly a Seven episode. You know, a scenario like her cortical implant picks up the signal from the monument, you know, and she starts reliving this. But instead, she's employed solely to tweak the audience a little bit. And just in case you're not getting the message just yet, um, they really make it clear, you know, when she talks about how it's important that we wield our, our guilt as a tool that we remember specifically to prevent the next atrocity. I mean, it's it, seven's a difficult fit in this episode because of who she is. Yeah. Because she is someone who has committed atrocities. Yeah. yeah. And, and we have seen, you know, in other stories where she, she takes that on the chin and she admits that, you know, I've done terrible things because I was part of the board collective. And of course the question about like, well, how much agency did she have in those things? That's a whole, whole other conversation. Sure. But she's in a, she's in a different position from the other characters because in a way, because she's experienced terrible things, she's better equipped to deal with it. Whereas our kind of morally upstanding Starfleet characters who would never in a million years, hopefully do the kind of stuff that the, 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 the current yeah. are not equipped to deal with, with the, with the, uh, the, the, the intense sort of emotional pressure and the, the trauma that, that comes from these events. And I think if we, you know, if we experienced it through Seven's eyes, I think maybe some of the emotional power of the story would have been robbed. It's it's hmm. better that our characters who are a little bit more naive in those kind of terms. Certainly, you know, Harry is always plays plays the, the sort of as the naive kind of character. You know, the guy who's the upbeat, nice, friendly guy. You know, who's who's not really going to be in this kind of situation, and he's pushed into doing this terrible thing, and he thinks he's experienced it. And have I experienced it? Did I do this? You know, the, yeah. the journey that Harry goes on through the story. Um, I don't think it would have had the same power if it would have been uh, Seven going through that narrative. 
Yeah. Instead, she's sort of set apart as the kind of the, oh, first time kind of character, the character with experience uh, with, with this situation. Almost the kind of Greek chorus in this story. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. She, she is the one kind of like saying, well, this is how this, this kind of stuff plays out. You know, this is, this is what it means to, to experience these sort of traumas. Yeah. Eat souffle. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up here, I, I was just curious, do you ultimately agree with Janeway's choice to keep the memorial going? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I think um, I can I can uh, completely understand like Chakotay's sort of experience of coming through this and going, you know, this traumatized me and we don't want this to happen to other people. Yeah. And, I think, and I think Janeway, you know, absolutely understands that that's right. But it's silencing the memorial silences everything about it. It silences the, the, the trauma that the, the people who really experienced this went through. And it means that you know, that also they would be switching off a part of a culture that, that they're not even involved with. You know, as we said, we don't know what the state of the Nakan is, but what right do you have to, to say to the Nakan? You cannot experience this memorial anymore. You cannot experience this event. Yeah. It's, it's unfair to do yeah. any of that. She does, the, you know, the next best thing she can, which yeah. is, well, we're going to try and fix this thing and we're going to put a buoy in orbit saying, you better be careful if you come too close, you're going to have this experience. Yeah. And, she kind of, like I said at the beginning, she reinstates the terms and conditions. Yeah, right. Device. Right. You know, like, do you accept? Please click this box. Well, then, okay, if you proceed past this point, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah, that's kind of the Federation's whole thing, their line, too. Like, she introduces that synthesis of clearly the Nakan, this was important, and they want you to know about this. But also, she introduces that idea of, of consent and body sovereignty, where it's like, we want you, yeah, we think that this is an, an important expression, but people, you know, need to have the option to have it as well. And um, yeah. I think that's what the Federation's all about. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, the, the choice remains, if if you want to, if you're, a, you can imagine maybe there might be somebody in the can saying like, well, that never happened. I don't believe it. I'm a, I'm a denier of, of the events. <laughs> <that's quite laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and that person has the right to say that. And it's, it's the Starfleet Federation way. It's like, you know, you have the right to choose your right. level of involvement with this, you, it, but it shouldn't be forced upon you. Well, at the end of the show, we usually talk about uh, my space dad can beat up your space dad. Uh, who's your favorite captain and why? And you said that your favorite captain was Kirk. And I was wondering how you think he might have handled this situation differently. Wow, that's a good question. You know, I never thought of that. He loves um, he loves uh, talking computers to death. <laughs> he loves sh shutting computers and systems down. I wonder if he may have might have made a different choice. Yeah, you know, I think I think Kirk would have probably pulled the plug. I think the uh, I think the, that final conversation, if if we reframe this as a TOS story, yeah, I can. I mean, you know, uh, the the thing about the original series is I always said that Kirk, Spark, McCoy are three aspects of the same personality. They're, sure. they're, they're, the reason they work so well is that. Spock is the, you know, the log coolly logical, rational. McCoy is the, you know, the visceral, energetic human. And Kirk is the kind of synthesis of the two trying to find a path that kind of pulls from both directions. Yeah. You can imagine McCoy's reaction to this would be the visceral, emotional sort of, you know, he would be traumatized by what's happening. But I think McCoy would also say there's a, there's a reason that this thing should stay around because it, it tells us an important message. And I think that Spock would would also kind of lead to that viewpoint is that this is you know do we have the right to turn this off right i think i think kirk would be conflicted but i think of i think he would probably come down on the pulling the plug option yeah just pulling the plug um feeling bad about it you know saying something about how um 
you know, time is consumes all of us and then just flying off at the end. Yeah. I can imagine, you know, I think Kirk would sort of, you know, he would leave a, he'd leave a note, you know, sorry, we turned your machine off, but you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it was, but it was traumatizing all of our crew members and we're not going to have that. Yeah. Cause I think Kirk would be more concerned about the fact that, that, you know, I don't want my crew or anybody else's crew running into this thing. Yeah. And I think he would be more likely to say, let's, let's just r- rather than saying to people, well, you can experience it if you, if you want to, I think Kirk would say, let's just pull the plug. That'd be safer. Yeah. And I think it reflects probably the ideas of, um, of exploring other cultures and uh, multiculturality in the sixties versus um, the nineties and the two thousands where the sixties would be like, well, that's uh, that's too bad. And things like that happen. But the nineties or two thousands is more of, well, let's, this is bad, but let's, let's learn about this. Let's make sure other sh- people know about this. Um, I guess I wonder like if we did that today, like if this was something on Picard, like how the, uh, how the crew or the captain would, would, uh, would act in this situation. I think Picard would, would go off and find in a can. I think he would um, <laughs> just trace it down to the source. Yeah. I think, I think he, you know, I can imagine Picard going off to find in the can and saying, you know, we experienced this by the way, go fix your memorial. Cause you're messing with people's heads. Yeah. You know, and he, but he'd say that, but he'd be respectful about it. Right. He'd say like, sure, you know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity to learn from this, this, this uh, teaching moment that, you know, but you guys should really do something about that. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe fix it. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, that would be the, I mean, I wonder, um, I don't know how Picard would deal with it as a younger Picard, like kind of TNG era Picard. I'm thinking of like the older sort of Picard where I'm saying that, I wonder how that, how that would, that would play out. Yeah. I think he might've turned it off as well. Younger Picard. Yeah. Maybe kind of, first, yeah. First season TNG Picard. Yeah. I can see him maybe going, yeah, this thing is you know not good for people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tragedy, but it's, yeah. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission at the rank of lieutenant junior grade. What department on the ship do you work in? Well, um, I'd probably want to be in operations because it means I get to fly the ship. Yeah, sure. I'd have to wonder, you know, you think about uh, like you know, Top Gun and, and fighter pilots and I feel the need for speed. And when you're so removed from what you're doing, uh, even from the physics of what you're doing, I wonder if it's fun to fly a Federation vessel or if it's just kind of like uh, like typing, you know, the person with the highest <laughs> words per minute is their best pilot. I, I have to say, you know, when uh, Voyager was being filmed, I did have the opportunity to kind of sit in every chair in the, on the bridge. Oh, that's great. And um, uh, and I and and Tom Paris's chair, if you've ever seen it, you know, he's it's on a kind of sliding rail. Yeah, yeah, so it yeah. Goes, it goes from it goes from a chair goes left, chair goes right, chair goes left, chair goes right, and uh, and I sat in Tom Paris's chair, and and that was the one I liked the most. Because, huh. because I, just, I just rested my hands on it and I felt like, yeah, I could fly this thing. I enjoy sure. <laughs> a wide command of all these systems. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but it is like, you know, the, um, I, I, and I think, you know, the, the, the point that you just made there about how it does feel like typing, I mean, I think that's why Tom Paris built the Delta Flyer with a joystick, right? It's, yes, yes, yes. You know, because he's obviously someone who harks back to that and he wants a little bit of that sort of tactility in his controls. So, you know, so he's got like kind of like, you know, throttle and stick and, and flicky switches and, and, and dials and what have you. I think that's yeah. he's got some of that going. 
I wonder if it's the influence of like military fiction in the years since the 60s, uh, Star Trek, the original series, or like video games, but it does seem like they want to introduce that that tactile uh, kinetic feeling back in. You know, you got the scene in Insurrection where Riker gets his little Logitech joystick to move the yeah. Enterprise around, or or even the scenes in uh, the recent uh, season of Discovery or Picard where there's they're flying and they're flying under things and over things and the cat's falling off the, the control console and that sort of thing. Yeah, and we've got the sort of the programmable matter, so it actually feels like, and rather than just being a touch sensitive screen, it's like yeah. oh, you know, little, little, it's it's you can imagine it's popping up under your hands, so you feel like you know, you're actually touching buttons and pressing stuff. Yeah, and the ship itself is sort of reconfiguring into different uh, streamlined configurations. I mean, we see a lot now in sci-fi of of the this what I always think of as the kind of the the Minority Report in a haptic interface, right? Which is the yeah. holographic panels floating in front of your face and you, you can reach in there and you can, you can pinch zoom like you do on, on your iPhone. <laughs> yes. Right? And, yes. And, and move, move apps and icons around. And I think that's obviously a, a reaction to the real world technology that we're using. Yeah. But to be honest, I'm, I'm firmly in the kind of like, I'm in the cockpit with Maverick and Goose, right? You know, I mean, I'm the guy, <laughs> if I was flying a spaceship, I would want, throttle and stick i would want the feel of like a yoke or a joystick or a throttle control sure. or some flicky switch buttons you know it's um much more the uh the battlestar galactica viper or the yeah you know, yeah, the yeah. wing or, or or uh serenity you know the the control systems on those i think speak to me a lot more than kind of just a touch sensitive screen yeah that's actually talks to you yeah. <laughs> well, Lieutenant Swallow, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? If you're interested in learning more about me and my writing, my Star Trek work, my Mark Dane novels, or pretty much anything that I've done, please come along and find me at my website, which is jswallow.com. And if you have any questions or you just want to see me posting interesting pictures of stuff I like, you can find me on Twitter and that's at JM Swallow. And your novel, The Dark Veil, is out now. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes where people can check that out. Also, we should be looking for the uh, the paperback release of Rogue and the U.S. release of Shadow coming soon. And where can people get those? You will be able to pick up Shadow from uh, Tor Forge Books. Uh, and uh, my Mark Dane books here in the U.K. are published by Bonnie Zafra. And all of my Star Trek fiction is available from Simon & Schuster. All right. And I'll get links to those in our show notes as well. Thanks again for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. It's always fun to to come and talk Star Trek. Thanks again. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. (laughs) 